Inside a rough and ruthless newsroom, thousands of stories fight for the spotlight. Only a few survive past their 15 minutes of fame. So what makes for a good headline and what makes for a buried byline? Join us, two former TV news producers, as we dig up stories that never got the recognition or justice they deserve. This is Buried Bylines. Yay! Episode 5. I cannot believe. I just want to take a minute to thank everyone who's listened and shared and reviewed our podcast. Megan and I have wanted to do this for a really long time. So we're having a really great time talking mm-hmm. about these cases, talking about our time in news. We've gotten a lot of great feedback and recommendations, including one that we're going to kind of dive into today. So we got a recommendation or I guess an offer, I should say, for a guest. And I thought that that was a great idea. Megan agreed. So we're kind of going to take this and turn it into a little mini series. We're both really connected still with people in the news industry. So we thought it would be fun to start bringing in our friends, people we worked with, different guests to talk about cases that they've covered. And, you know, whether they blew up or not, just kind of talking about what it was like to work in news and cover crime cases. So with that being said, I'd like to welcome our very first guest on Buried Bylines, Pat Enright. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. What an honor. Yes. Thank you so much. So, Megan, Pat was my assistant news director Mm -hmm. at my first TV job in Dayton. He actually hired me. And then on my first day, he said that he was leaving. <laughs> Surprise. Bye. Hi, bye. <laughs> Which is very on brand for the news industry as a whole of That's like true. people come and go so often they go to different markets, they get out of news. It, it just mm-hmm. depends. But yeah, so that was kind of, I was so sad after that left. Oh. Yeah, it, you know, you, you never, you want to always take care of the newsroom, so you never want to tell the incoming people that you're leaving until they've signed and they're in the door. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Thanks. I didn't, sure. I didn't actually ever get a contract there, so. Well, yeah, that's a good point. Could good be point. a blessing, ma'am. <laughs> that's another, that's another, that's for another podcast. It's a whole um, different podcast. <laughs> So, Pat, tell us where you got your start in your news career and kind of where the business took you. Well, I, I'm i actually from Massachusetts originally, and I sort of, it's sort of in my blood, I think, because my mother was a newspaper reporter and an editor, and then my father was a police officer. And he actually, kind of an interesting story, but he worked in Boston for a while and he actually worked Boston Strangler case. Unfortunately, he's passed, but I wish he was like, I never got to talk to him about it, but my mother's told me some things. So that, that I was always intrigued by that, but I came to the university of Dayton in here in Ohio. And when I graduated, I just kind of stuck around. Ohio couldn't get rid of me. So uh, I sort of fell into TV news. I really liked to write and I liked trying to be creative. And that was sort of a, you know, as you two know, as a news producer, those are two important traits. So uh, I did that for a while and I moved my way up. I was at two different TV stations here in Dayton for about 23 years. And then I recently, actually over five years ago, I, I went into the world of academia. So I'm now at the, at the University of Dayton and uh, yeah, but it's, you know, news is in my blood. I still freelance from time to time, believe it or not, Mallory. <laughs> 
So yeah, I get to produce every now and again. My title is director of flyer media. So I oversee our media properties, our, our flyer TV, radio, newspaper. We also have a PR agency that I, I help oversee. I also work in the Department of Communication and I, I run the internship program. So those oh are my- Oh my gosh. Well, those kids are so lucky. I know how much it meant to Megan and I to work with. I mean, we worked with a bunch of people who had such great experience in like the news industry and they helped mentor us through college and those roles are invaluable. So yes, that's why I got here. Yeah, those <laughs> well, kids are so lucky. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Well, that's, you know, that became, the longer I was, I was in the industry for what, 23 years and the longer I was in it, you know, when I started, Dayton was not a starter market, but by the time I left, it definitely was. And that became a big part of the job, mentoring people, young people straight out of school. And I really did enjoy that. And that's why when the university position opened up, I said, oh, this would be a great fit. I, I'm already doing this, uh, you know, on day yeah. basis. It'd be nice if this was actually my real job is mentoring young people. And, and that's awesome. Oh, also, when you said the Bosch and Strangler thing, I almost fell out of my chair. That's so awesome. Yeah, there's there's going to be a show. Uh, somebody Hulu or Netflix. Somebody's put yes. on a show, and I can't wait to see it. <gasps> Me either. And it's, it's actually the show is about a reporter covering the Boston Strangling. Whoa! No. Yeah, that's crazy. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let's get to this crazy. Story. I know. We've been Are talking about it, and I'm really excited. I've been hyping it up. I'm not going to lie. Okay. So Pat sent me this case. I was immediately intrigued. I had never heard of it, but we are going to be deep diving into the murder of Samantha Ritchie. Have you heard of this case, Megan? No. Okay. I want to prepare Pat for how mad Megan's going to get. I apologize right now. <laughs> because there are a lot of infuriating things about this case. Oh, no. Yes, it's, yeah, it's, I think anytime, anytime you talk about child deaths, it's, it's oh, awful. Yeah. But yeah, there's, yeah. yes. Yeah. So let's go back to 1995. That's when I was born. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Ouch. I knew that was going to happen. I knew Sorry. that was going to happen. Sorry. Oh man. Okay. Well, it's a Monday night in the middle of the summer. Teresa Jolin Mitchie, who goes by Jolin, is getting ready to put her four-year-old daughter, Samantha, to bed. According to police, Jolin and her brother, Scott, were hanging out at their house around 10.30 p.m. They decided to put Samantha to bed for the night. They both tucked her in, and then Scott also went to bed, and JoLynn then decided to go run some errands. So she told police that she went over to her grandmother's house, and then she went to a drive through and the Dayton Daily News reports that she was gone for about two hours. <laughs> Literally one paragraph into my research, and I'm like, things are already sketchy. So it's reported that around 1.30 in the morning, four-year-old Samantha showed up at the door of Vicki Hammond, who shared the other half of Jolin's duplex. And she was also like a friend of the family. So they shared like an apartment complex yeah. and they lived on one side, Vicki lived on the other. And Vicki said she told the little girl to go back in her home and go to bed. 
and a 16-year-old neighbor who was staying at Vicky's that night backs up her story. He said that he also saw the four-year-old come to the door and that she kind of sent her away to go go to bed. JoLynn told police that she went to bed around 2.30 and believed that four-year-old Samantha was in the bed next to her. They were sleeping in bed together. What do you mean believed? Ma'am? Later that morning, around 10, JoLynn woke up and realized Samantha was not in bed with her. In fact, she wasn't in the house at all. Around 11, JoLynn called the police, which led to a massive search party for the four-year-old. Investigators quickly pulled JoLynn in for questioning, along with her brother, Scott, and Samantha's father, Denton Ritchie, who had just recently divorced JoLynn. So they had just finalized their divorce about a month before this, and she was living with JoLynn. All three were interviewed, given polygraphs, and then released. At the same time, the community quickly rallied around the young mom. Upwards of 20,000 flyers with Samantha's face had been printed out and distributed around the Dayton area. You couldn't really go anywhere in the greater Dayton area without seeing this little girl's picture. And she's so cute. She's got like little pigtails and it's just the cutest little picture. And neighbors also decorated the area around their houses with pink ribbons in honor of Samantha and hosted a candlelight vigil. All very common things that kind of happen that we see in news when someone goes missing. Two days into the search for Samantha, a tragic mistake is made. A volunteer who believed a body had been found spread the news to family and friends in the community. And TV stations and news outlets picked up on the announcement and actually reported the error on broadcast. Pat, can you talk to me about this? You know, honestly, this is almost 30 years ago, and I was a young associate producer. Uh, I don't rem- I don't remember that. Um, I would love to say it was not the station I was working at, but I, I cannot uh, 100% confirm that. Okay, well, I have more information about that that I will come back to toward the end of our story that I think you will find very interesting. This is so stressful already. <laughs> it's only going to get worse. No. I can promise you. Yeah, I'm not going in a good direction. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. So while the misinformation was spreading like wildfire, a lot was going on behind the scenes. City workers were searching drain pipes and sewers. Fire crews were searching the area around nearby waterways. Both crews came up with nothing. Around 10 p.m. that night, homicide detectives showed up at the Ritchie home. So we're like two days into the investigation and police are already kind of suspecting the worst. Yeah. Two hours after that home search, detectives were seen leaving the house with two paper bags of items for analysis. The very next morning on Friday, July 21st, police brought several people to the Dayton Safety Building for questioning. The group once again included the mom, JoLynn, but this time police wanted to speak to witnesses in the neighboring duplex, Vicki Hammond and her guest. 
That same evening, police made a plea to the public and Samantha's potential abductor. They believed that whoever took Samantha may have been scared off by the publicity of her disappearance. Another strange piece of information revealed by police was that the pink nightgown Samantha was thought to have been wearing when she disappeared was actually found inside the home. Not good. This was a scene I remember because we'd send news crews out there every single day. Yeah. And some of the characters, not to spoil it, I don't know if you're going to go down this road or, or not, Mallory, but at some point there's a character named Junebug that's involved. Junebug? Yeah, it was oh, uh, it was a scene. And it's a human, a human being named Junebug. It was a human being named Junebug. Okay. Yes, I did I did read a little bit about Junebug, but honestly, they didn't make big enough of an impact to get themselves into our script today. So <laughs> there are a lot of people who were brought in for questioning and then later released and tried to involve themselves in the case, which yeah. often happens. So yeah. We do see that. I just remember like whenever they're, especially a child, looky loose come out and they want to get their opinion on the news. So, and they're the people that are on the scene. So of course they're going to get interviewed. So it's just like a lot of people are on the scene, which can was, kind of make things difficult. Yeah. And it was, um, I mean, like I said, it's, it's been almost 30 years, but it was a massive people. I mean, it was great. You know, I, I make fun of the neighborhood. There were some characters, but it was, everybody came together and it was days yeah. and days of just everybody searching and mm. it was a great community reaction yeah Ugh. well fast forward to saturday july 22nd police are back at the ritchie home to quote retrace their footsteps this time they roped off the entire block for their investigation a few hours later, police officers bring out cadaver-sniffing dogs who comb the area around the GHR foundry, which was an abandoned factory, basically, a few blocks away from the Ritchie home. And that's when police found Samantha's body under six feet of water. Wow. She was buried in a pit inside the foundry. Police say the body appeared to have been submerged in the water for several days, so now the search for Samantha's kidnapper has turned into a full-blown murder investigation. I don't know if you read this anywhere, but like, what about the scene made it look like a homicide? Was she like weighed down? Is that she what... was buried? It was like a, it was like six feet, and she had been buried and then covered in water. Okay. So okay. Um, so they were like, yeah. we know this is not an accident. This is a homicide. Yeah. Okay. Also, and, and it wasn't a drowning. Yeah, right. I oh. I will get to her manner of death in a okay. little bit, but okay. it was very obvious that she had not been drowned. Oh, no, that's so sad. Okay. Yeah. So, Pat, do you remember what kind of the public was thinking at this time? Like, did they think that a certain person was responsible? Were they pointing fingers at the family? I think people were so outraged. And I think in these situations, at least from my experience, let's face it, even though in a lot of these cases, it is someone in the family or mom's boyfriend or somebody close, I think everyone always thinks, especially from what we had heard going into it, that it was a stranger abduction. So I think when it first happened, there was a lot of fear, but I, I don't 
feel like that fear lasted long because it wasn't too long until you could I guess you can you can yes. kind of think about it. it wasn't long <laughs> yes. before no it was 12 days after Samantha went missing that police once again were questioning her family and that night Dayton police chief Ronnie Lowe announced an arrest in Samantha's murder her mother Jolyn was taken into custody alongside 43 year old Ernest Vernell Brooks Jolyn made her first court appearance the very next day in front of a packed courtroom. She was charged with involuntary manslaughter, gross abuse of a corpse, tampering with evidence, and inducing panic. Jolyn maintained her innocence, telling the judge that she was wrongly accused, which is insane. But it's pretty crazy because it's like, basically just like how did we get here what kind of led her to murder her daughter and it basically all came out during her trial yeah and let me tell you that it reads like the plot of a real life horror film oh no but so involuntary manslaughter that's different than murder so is she i don't know it makes me think that she was like, oh, it was an accident. And then I got scared and I had to cover the body up, but you'll get into it. But that's um, just my initial reaction. Es- essentially, like, I think it's involuntary manslaughter because it was not like a calculated murder. But in late January of 1996, the public found out the terrifying details of this case from Ernest Brooks, who was arrested alongside Jolyn. Ernest testified that he had gone over to Jolyn's house for the night on July 18th. He said Jolyn attacked Samantha after the four-year-old walked in on the two of them having sex. Okay, get get out of here. Er- I that's <laughs> terrible. I'm he is he he's not the dad, right? He is he just like a no. He's he like was a fuck boyfriend. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I I heard him referred to as her boyfriend. I it seems like they were kind of just hooking up. I don't know, but I'm curious to see what kind of that like initial reaction was when people found out that basically the reason she killed her daughter was because she walked in on them having sex. Yeah, and and gosh, I'm I'm going off script here and um if memory serves, and again, my memory's not as sharp as it once was, I feel like she had a boyfriend and Vern was kind of a side piece. And that's why she was upset when Samantha walked in. And and Mallory, I'm sorry if I'm ruining any surprises for no, you. No, that's I didn't know that. That's what such happened, a good apparently was she had a cast. Uh Jolyn had a broken arm. And what happened was she apparently hit Samantha in the head with her cast. But then apparently she also, from court documents, is what we what we what we know now is that she also used a wrench to hit her. What the hell, man? But and I will a couple of quick things. The the trial was crazy, and we we aired the entire trial live on the air. Whoa! And I believe it was the first time they've that's ever been done in Montgomery County. Um, that's crazy. So much public interest in it that we aired it. I 
it's again, it's been a minute, but I believe it was on our, we had a separate channel, sort of like a CW, WB, you know, whatever that was back in the day. Miami Valley channel is what we called it. I believe it was on the Miami Valley channel, but we, we covered the whole trial. And after the stuff with the cast came out, we went back and looked at our videos that we had of all of the interviews with Joe Lynn. And the first interview that she did with the media, she was sitting on her porch wearing the cast. Oh the my next God. time she talked to us, the cast was gone. She cut oh it, my God. it herself and tried to get rid of the evidence. She sure did. And I'm going to talk about that. So, like, bitch. Okay, go ahead. I'm so, so mad. Go ahead. Ernest basically laid Jolyn out to dry. He admitted that she beat Samantha over the head with her cast. And then after that, I, I think she just didn't know what to do. And so she just kind of put her out of her misery. And she actually caved the back of her skull in with a wrench beating her beating the back of her head so it seems like she kind of just flew off the handle after that initial hit to the head and Ernest admitted to not intervening obviously he let it happen and then he helped Jolyn dispose of the body so circling back to our friend Vicky who is the neighbor she corroborated Ernest's story and she testified that Jolyn had been wearing a cast at the time of Samantha's disappearance. She even recalled a conversation she had where Jolyn joked about how the cast would make a good weapon. Vicky testified that Jolyn later took the cast off while visiting her house and tried to throw it away in Vicky's trash can. But Vicky secretly kept the cast and turned it over to police for evidence. Yay, Vicky. I mean. Go, go Vicky. <laughs> go, Vicky. Vicky's a hero of the story. Yeah. Oh, my God. She's Awful. trash. Well, yes. it's, 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 the whole Vern Brooks thing is interesting, too, because I believe he was convicted of gross abuse of a corpse, you know. But there was a lot of speculation. They, they had some differing witnesses which obviously always happens in, in the trial some expert witnesses who one had said that Samantha had been sexually abused molested and another witness who or another uh, expert witness who said she had not so there was a lot of questions about you know people were wondering was he more involved than and, right. and since then he's been arrested several t- twice for different inappropriate yeah he's in prison right now good um oh my god i hope he listens to this two different cases where he sexually assaulted an 11 year old in 1998 and then yeah so a nine-year-old girl in august of 2005 god okay there's yeah that's what a creep yeah so that was his first incidents in my opinion but so like i said he, he was kind of a controversial figure i mean obviously not saying anything when you knew all along this was going on and you know he was one of the guys in the neighborhood that was talking right always up for an interview so of course when this all came out it was obviously pretty shocking right especially for reporters that like talk to this guy yeah yeah, it 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 was it was monstrous and like i said as i was saying earlier it's you know I, i was in tv news for 23 years and this was my first year in a TV newsroom. And I, it's when Mallory had said to me, Hey, do you, can you think of any stories that have stuck with you? I'm like, well, this one for sure. And I think anytime 
we've had a few missing kids cases here in Dayton. I'm sure, um, I mean, I, I guess every city has probably had them, but those things stick with you because you see the pictures all the time, you know, in some ways, and this is going to sound awful, but at least this one's solved. It's yeah. those ones where they never find the kids and I you know. just. Closure is good, but it sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's... at least you have an end, but it's not the end anyone wants. Yeah. But like, and it's, it's horrifying that the mother yeah. is, you know, yeah. that a mother could do this to her. Friend. I know. Mm-hmm. Gosh, so, and I've never heard of this in my life. I don't know, I know. how. Well, I guess you'll get into it, but go ahead. And you'll have to look well, at the pictures too. You'll have to. Um, I mean, she was adorable. She was no. just so cute. Well, that's not the only damning evidence against Jolyn. Those two testimonies. Homicide investigator Thomas Lawson testified that he heard Jolyn confess to the murder during an interrogation shortly after her arrest. Three other detectives would go on to take the stand and also state that they heard Jolyn confess to the crime. It took the jury made up of six men and six women just five hours of deliberation to find Jolyn Ritchie guilty of murder, gross abuse of a corpse, two counts of tampering with evidence, making a false alarm and inducing panic. On Valentine's Day 1996, Jolyn was sentenced to 22 years to life in prison. Ernest Brooks pleaded guilty to his role in the murder. He was sentenced to a maximum of five years for abuse of a corpse, tampering with evidence and obstruction of justice. And now we know he's still trash and also in jail. So. And if you think, I mean, she would, you know, looking back now, she'd, she'd be 32, 33 years old, you know, and it's just all that life, just, just senseless. Now is when I'm really going to need you to buckle up, Megan, because you're going to get real mad. Uh, I thought, okay. (laughs) Yeah, when you thought it couldn't get worse, I did a little bit more digging. So before the sentencing, Samantha's father, Denton Ritchie, told the judge he suspected Jolyn was responsible shortly after Samantha went missing. Denton said that Jolyn showed no emotion during the four-day search. He told the judge, quote, she betrayed the entire community, believing that her crime would be forever undetected. Jolyn took the most precious thing in my life away from me. And he turned to Jolyn and said, may God have mercy on your soul because I have none for you. So I wanted to learn a little bit more about Denton because they were obviously divorced. I wanted to know kind of like what his role was. And Denton and Jolyn were married shortly after she gave birth to Samantha. Things seemed pretty great for the new family of three, but about a month into their marriage, Denton, who was serving in the U.S. Army Reserve, was deployed to fight in the Persian Gulf War. Jolyn didn't necessarily handle single motherhood very well. She started abusing alcohol and drugs And in 1994, when she was arrested, she was booked on disorderly conduct, intoxication, and felonious assault. The arrest and consequential probation didn't stop her from her habits, though. It wasn't until Denton returned home from his deployment that Jolyn was kind of brought back to reality. He came home and kind of just freaked out about the whole situation, rightfully so. He told Jolyn that he wanted a divorce and that he wanted custody of Samantha. As you can imagine, she did not take very well to that. 
She refused to give up custody, forcing Denton to take her to court. And here's where I personally find it hard to contain my rage. So despite Jolyn's known issues with drugs, alcohol, and law enforcement, the court still awarded her full custody of Samantha. Do you know when they made that ruling? July 11th, 1995, exactly one week to the day before she was brutally murdered. Fuck, man. So the court system really failed this little girl because they knew that her mother was dealing with a lot of issues. And I don't know if there was a good case for her to not be with her dad, but it, it doesn't really seem... It seems like he really tried to fight for her and wanted to have custody of her. And, you know, this ruling came down and a week later. His daughter was murdered. So. Ugh. Well, that's like what? Like, why? Why would she fight for her? She clearly right? that's what here. I, it's just to screw you to don't death. care about her. Yeah. Like, why? Uh, it's just so he couldn't have her. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Courts usually do award it award custody to the mothers typically but i mean in this case you have to like she had prior charges and like there's a history of her doing that while being a single parent that's so awful it was pretty that that tidbit like really upset me especially how close it was to like, her getting custody she couldn't handle being a full guardian for a week without losing her mind and killing her kid so in 2010, after 14 years behind bars, Jolyn put in a request for parole, but she was denied. Prosecutor Matt Heck said, quote, when you consider Samantha's physical injuries and panic throughout the community, Jolyn Ritchie should never be released from prison. No. Um, <laughs> rot. Rot in there. The community agreed there were multiple petitions and rallies to keep Jolyn in prison. The Ohio Parole Board determined she would spend at least 10 more years behind bars before being considered for release. And that brings us to January of 2020. She, This bitch better not be out of prison. I'm going to be mad. <laughs> JoLynn was scheduled to appear before a parole board in April of 2020 to take a look at her case and decide if she sh should be released. As we know, in March of 2020, the world shut down due to COVID-19. Um, I couldn't find any follow-up articles on if her parole appearance was impacted by the pandemic or not, but I can tell you that the board denied her release in 2020, and she is currently still serving out her time at the Ohio Reformatory for Women. According to the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections, she is up for parole again in 2030. I hope her pillow is always hot. Like she never has the cool side. There's no cool side. No. I have more information. Do you want Oh, to? God, you're killing me, ma'am. Okay. <laughs> this is very interesting stuff. I kind of really took a deep dive, but... I want to talk about the coverage a little bit about her case. So when I was researching, I was only able to find articles from like local news outlets, like the Dayton Daily News and TV stations. I also found updates from the Associated Press Wire, which led me to believe that there was national coverage if it was on the wire. But 
I mean, we know the news industry has changed so much since 1995 and how we consume news is so different. It's all digital now and we can't expect news archives to all currently be online. But through my research, I found a podcast from Dayton.com that features a former detective named Doyle Burke. In the podcast, Burke is being interviewed about a book he wrote detailing some of the biggest cases from his career. So in the interview, Burke said that Samantha, the Samantha Ritchie case received an insane amount of coverage, both local and national, because it reminded the media and a lot of people of a similar case that had just happened in South Carolina. Which I talked to my mom about this because this case happened when they were living in South Carolina and she said immediately she knew like this woman's name. She remembered it, but yes, Susan Smith had blamed a carjacker for the disappearance of her two young sons and pleaded on national television for their safe return before confessing that she had actually crashed her car into a pond and drowned the three-year-old and 14-month-old on purpose mm-hmm. what the hell yeah susan smith went to trial the same day that samantha ritchie went missing whoa and i think what made the susan smith if i remember correctly and correct me if i'm wrong even worse was she was very specific that it was a black man who had oh so yeah. it was you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was not good. Yeah. Not only so, are you a murderer, yeah, you're also, yeah, you're a, also racist. a racist. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, and it also, because this case ended up being so similar to Susan's and they happened so close to each other, it kind of just made this case even more interesting to the public. Another piece of information that Detective Burke released during his interview had to do with that misinformation spread early Mm -hmm. in the search for Samantha. So it turns out that it wasn't a mistake at all. Burke said that police used the media frenzy to their advantage. They sent a few officers to a nearby park on reports that a volunteer had found Samantha's body. All the media crew followed suit and showed up at the alleged scene, Burke and a number of other officers stayed back at the house with JoLynn. The police crew had monitors on scene with live camera feeds. When they saw the police officers had pulled up to the park, JoLynn was not paying attention to the screen. She just turned to her friend and started talking. And Burke said, That's because she knew the body wasn't at the park. She knew it was in the abandoned building. Everybody in the neighborhood was transfixed on this monitor. They thought that they were going to find Samantha's body, but Jolyn appeared uninterested and even walked away. So police used that as a huge context clue that she was involved in the murder. That's so smart. Crazy. Yeah, that is that is interesting. I yeah, I, like I said, I, I don't remember that, but I'm sure if the police kind of let that happen, you know, um, and I and again, I was just a little AP in that newsroom, uh, yeah. right? Coffee, not doing much, but um, 
Yeah, it was uh, it was chaotic for sure. And I was just thinking to myself and I just looked it up because I couldn't remember the date, but it wasn't too much after this all went down that uh, the John Benet Ramsey. Uh, <gasps> yes. Oh my God. John, kind of similar. John yeah. Wow. Yeah. John Benet was December of that year. So when. Right? Yes. So. Yeah. So she was sentenced in February and then John Benet had that case wow. happened in December yeah. of the same year. So, I mean, it's, it, it was sort of when that happened, I mean, I, but it, you know, it's like the John Benet case blew up. It was the biggest thing ever. It was everywhere. Right. And, and like you were talking about earlier, you know, social media wasn't a thing back then, but somehow that still became, you know, and maybe this case, because I, you know, not, not to be rude, but maybe it's because of the, the, the neighborhood mm -hmm. where this happened or that it was solved so quickly you know, obviously John Bonet was a beauty queen from right. this wealthy neighborhood. Yeah. There was a lot to that. I mean, obviously, it's never, never been solved, quote unquote. But um, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's just interesting that one case was such a big deal, still being talked about today, and the other one was right kind of a blip on the radar. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering too, like, do you think? Because I also thought about Jean Bonet when I was researching this. And they did happen so closely. And I'm wondering, Jean Bonnet is like a household name in tr the true crime community. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, do you think it's because they never found her killer? I do think that's a big part of it because everyone has a theory. Right. You know, I think it's uh, the true crime community. A lot of people, I mean, there's message boards and websites and everything else just dedicated to who killed Jean Bonnet. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that obviously plays into it. But I even think that first couple of days when her body was found in her house, it it blew up. Yeah, it was everywhere. But I think you were onto something because you did mention the difference in socioeconomic status. Yeah. And we talked about this with the Gabby Petito case, but John Bonet had eyes on her already. So like when something happens, more people know who she is. And then they jump in and they're like, oh, she was at that pageant that I was at. And then they all talk about it. And I think, I mean, her parents were very wealthy. So they ran in those circles and it got a lot of media attention very quickly. So I do think just types of neighborhood, types of victim sure. is very. And this is going to sound awful, but is there is there part, part of us, not us, of course, because we're very... Um, you know, we have very high morals, but are, are there people who like to see bad things happen to? That's a good point. Are, you know, I successful, mean, yeah. out, yeah. outwardly yeah. successful people. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good yeah. point. But I just, I know. also, I also wonder if like, the Jean Bonnet case kind of had the same effect that like, the Scott Peterson case did of like when it happened because we all know that like the news cycles around, yeah. around holidays are yeah, there's Christmas. there's not a yes. lot going on and so I'm wondering if you know I mean this case happened in the middle of the summer Samantha when she was murdered but John Bonet was it was what the day it was Christmas Eve or it was the Christmas, day yeah. the day it after Christmas so there's not a lot going on normally yeah. in news in newsrooms around the holidays and so it was something they could easily fixate on mm -hmm. yeah that's true that's that really is true. a good point 
I know the one the one final fact that I have, Jolyn, that I will leave you with that I think says a lot about her as a person. So I found out in my research that Jolyn actually has three other kids. They're all alive. Yes, they. So according to a report from the Dayton Daily News, she gave birth to sons Edward, Gregory, and Timothy all before the age of seventeen. So basically, she when she was fourteen, she met this guy. She ran away with him to Tucson, Arizona. She had these three kids. They were together, um, but they never got married. And then I guess when things didn't work out between them, she came back to Ohio, left the kids with him, met Denton. They had Samantha, and then yeah, she fought for Samantha. That doesn't make sense to Those me. Those kids well, were really lucky to be left in Tucson. Yeah, that's true. Ugh. Yes. Um, You know, I do think the one interesting thing is, you know, we talk about this a lot. It's really hard to gauge how people are going to react to tragedy and everyone reacts differently. But looking back, I just remember sitting in that newsroom when this was all going down. We would look back at her interviews after we knew what we know now. And it's just the nonchalance and, and the, you know. I just feel like it was like it's just staring us in the face the whole time. Like it was just yeah. right there. The red flags were were just mm-hmm. there. People would be out searching and she would be hanging out with June Bug or you know, whatever. And yeah. it's it's just yeah. Looking back at it, it's kind of like, I guess we probably should have suspected. Right. And I think we you know how news people yeah, are. yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, they did it, <laughs> you know, from day one. Everyone has a theory. But yeah, it's just it's just interesting. Like I said, looking back, like I said, when we noticed that cast was gone, the Ugh. second and third interview were like, I have chills. Cool. That's spooky. Yeah. Uh, but they so, say actions speak louder than words. So like by not reacting at all to like, especially when they say, oh, we might have found a body and your kid is missing. Yeah. Even if you walk away and, from the TV, like that's a reaction. She didn't do anything. She just like talked to her friends or whatever, like. And I feel like the first interview she did was there was emotion, but it was just so over the top. Oh, okay. It's kind of like, I don't know. Like I mean, each one was, it was just sort of, it was, it was odd. It yeah. Was, her reactions and her emotions were, were not what you'd expect. Right. Wow. If this case happened today, how do you think the public would have reacted? Do you think it would have become a bigger even bigger story i do i mean i think i think everything just because it's so horrific you know and obviously social media and digital is just such a big obviously it's it's changed everything in terms Mm -hmm. of news delivery and how we get you know how we get news how we process news but i think it's just i mean obviously there's a lot of terrible cases like you said gabby petito you know all these things but for a mother to kill her four, her beautiful four-year-old daughter because she walked into a room in her house. It's just... Right. Uh, and in yeah. such a horrific way. Yeah. It's a personal way. I mean, yeah, I mean, I could see, I could see this these days blowing up to a point where you might see a documentary on it or a Netflix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like I said, it's it's something that's just stuck with me. It's, it was just it was just so yeah. terrible. It was like one terrible thing after another. Yeah, 
I don't blame you. I was like shocked the entire when I was doing all my research. I was like, this is crazy. And I felt like every time I would learn something that would like shock me, something else would come up and I'd be like, oh my God. That's what you just said to me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I it was I know. over and you were like, hold on. I have so much more. There's so uh, many layers to it, but, um, and, you know, you think about these people that cover these stories and, you know, the, the, the reporters who are out there in those neighborhoods, making those relationships, talking to JoLynn, you know, getting to know her, you know, being there to support her, feeling empathy for her. And then it turns around and you find out, oh, right. God, you are a complete monster. And, you know, uh, it's, yeah, it was, it was a blow. Oh, that Man. was insane. You're right. Well, it was an insane case. <laughs> I told you. I didn't lie to you. I know. That's um, true. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing this case with me. Yeah. And thanks for having me. Being our first guest, it was yeah. so nice to hear your input and hear about, you know, stuff that we wouldn't be able to just like read in a yeah. in a news story online so i so appreciate you offering to take an hour out of your night to talk about this case with us yeah well i'm honored to be your first guest and um yeah i appreciate you guys uh inviting me and and um it's it's been you know it's a case like this can't say it's been fun but it's been nice uh talking with you too right and, and processing it all so yeah i mean talking about it's like closure too like Kind of like therapy. It's how we get through things. And then we either laugh or we cry. So sometimes both. Yes. Yeah. Yes. As former journalists, we want to give credit where credit is due. For this episode, I got my information from the Dayton Daily News, the Associated Press, WHIO, the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction, the Cincinnati Inquirer and the What Had Happened Was podcast. You can find a complete list of our sources in the show notes. Please make sure you check them out. Bye! Bye. <laughs>